Father God, thank you that we get in this part of our worship uh, to give our hearts and our minds to you and ask you to, to teach us and impact us. God, we, we need the work of your Holy Spirit because without that, God, either this is just a, some kind of religious exercise or it's just a complete total waste of time. Uh, but please, God, deliver us from that. Let us hear from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, back in May, on Memorial Day, the staff went to a uh, Rockies game. And uh, that day we had a, a good time watching the Rockies play. Excuse me, I need my lip balm for my hands here. Uh, and uh, at any given moment, there were nine men on the field and, and a batter, you know, as you would expect. And there were, I don't know how many, 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 people up in the stands and they were eating and, and they were cheering and they were drinking. Of course, none of the staff was doing any of that drinking. But anyway, never once did anyone from the, from the stands get invited down onto the field of play. Not once. Uh, in high school and college, uh, I went to a lot of rock concerts. I got to see Janis Joplin and you know, Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Jethro Tull, Chicago, uh, James Taylor, Led Zeppelin, and a whole bunch of others. And in spite of the fact that I was always near the stage, and in spite of the fact that I had taken piano lessons, guitar lessons, drum lessons, even Hawaiian guitar lessons, steel guitar, never once, not once did I get invited up on the stage to play and to sing with the band. Not once. Uh, I was just part of the crowd. And there is a big difference between being part of the crowd and being an actual participant. Because you see, a crowd watches. A participant engages. A crowd can be amazed at the performance, amazed for a moment. A participant is somebody who's part of making the moment happen. And I mention this because at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, this same distinction is being very carefully made by Matthew, the writer of this gospel. He says this, he says, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him, followed Jesus. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. In other words, Matthew wants us to know that there are two groups of people there on the side of that hill, two groups of people in Jesus' audience. He doesn't use the distinctions that other people would have been very, very familiar with. Things like male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave and free. He doesn't use those distinctions. Those distinctions would have been obvious to everybody, but those distinctions don't matter very much to Jesus. But here's the one that does. There are crowds and there are disciples. Uh, Matthew actually mentions crowds 49 times in his gospel. The crowds come to hear Jesus teaching. The crowds bring their sick friends for healing. The crowds are often amazed at what Jesus says and amazed at what they see Jesus do. The crowds call Jesus a prophet, in fact, but the crowds are present with Jesus only sporadically, only when it's convenient for them. 
And they come to him when they have a need. They recognize that this is a rabbi who's unique. He's not like many of the other rabbis. But they don't necessarily follow him. They are not a part of his ministry. They are not disciples. They sort of drift, drift with the circumstances. I mean, on Palm Sunday, for example, when it looks like Jesus might fulfill the wishes of the crowd for a king that would overthrow the Roman uh, oppressors, the crowd is crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of, name of, uh, name of God, almighty God. What's so interesting, though, is five days later, just five days on Friday, when, when Jesus has not done what they wanted him to do, the same crowd cries out, crucify him. Wow, major shift, crucify him, they say. The crowd is not the same as the disciples. Matthew mentions disciples some 65 times in his gospel. Uh, a disciple is somebody who uh, used to be a part of the crowd, uh, but somewhere along the line, Jesus got under their skin. His life, his teaching, his message about God and about the kingdom of God became so compelling to them that they can't get loose of him. And so they find themselves wanting to be around him all they can. They find themselves wanting to be like him, wanting to do life the way Jesus does life, wanting the same priorities that Jesus has, wanting a relationship with the heavenly father that Jesus says they now can have, but never imagined that they could. Now you need to know that uh, Jesus loves the crowds. Uh, He's not not upset at or angry at the crowds. In fact, seeing the crowds kind of did a number on Jesus' heart. Not because he needed their attention, not at all, but because he saw how badly they needed to know God, the Heavenly Father. And it would move Jesus. Jesus saw the dignity and the brokenness of everybody in the crowd. They weren't nameless faces to him. They were individuals that he knew. Matthew tells us this, that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus understood that most people live their lives as part of the crowd. Um, And that's actually still true today. Most people just kind of follow the crowd, even in a church. Even in a church, you have the crowd, and then you have the disciples. You know, the crowd is that group that watches. The crowd is that group that is amazed sometimes by what they see or what they hear. They show up when they have a need, when it's convenient, when it works for them. Uh, The crowd doesn't necessarily really participate. They don't necessarily make the moment happen, you understand. And you might ask yourself, which group am I in? Is it clear which group that I'm in? Am I just part of the crowd or am I a disciple? Am I just watching Jesus work or am I changing into who Jesus wants me to be? Are my priorities, you know, what what I do with my time and how I structure it and where I spend it, what I do with my stuff and is it just used on me? Is it used for kingdom things? Uh, How do I invest myself in terms of my talents and my abilities, all those things? Uh, do my priorities reflect the same priorities that Jesus has? Is my character becoming more like Jesus? Growing in wisdom, growing in humility, growing in love, growing in service, growing in generosity, because you won't meet anybody more generous than Jesus or God the Father. 
or the Holy Spirit? Am I those things or am I just drifting along with the crowd, kind of just doing what others in the crowd do? You know, the default mode, friends, of the human race is to just go along with the crowd. That's default. That's what we do without thinking. That's being a sheep without a shepherd. And as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls that the broad road, the broad gate, as opposed to the narrow road and the narrow gate, which is the path of obedience, the path of blessing, actually. And Jesus warns that the broad road leads to destruction. Not a good place. Now, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we saw this last week, talking about foundations and what are we going to build our lives upon. And Jesus says this, he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. And yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down, streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus warns us about a catastrophic fall, a great crash, he says. And then we read these words. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed, amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. It's interesting to me that Matthew deliberately keeps pointing out the presence of the crowds and their response. And this has a a lot to do with you and me today, I think. Uh, Reading the Sermon on the Mount, hearing Jesus' words, grappling with Jesus' invitation uh, creates a crossroads. I said this last week, we all have a crossroads in our life. We have big crossroads and then we have kind of almost like daily crossroads. Will I do what Jesus says? Will I trust his teaching? Will I go the narrow gate or will I go the broad gate? See, identifying with and following this man, that's the narrow gate. Will I build my life on the foundation of his person, his teaching, his passions, his concerns, and join his kingdom or not? In other words, will I be a part of the crowd or will I become a disciple? That's a loaded question. In a way, you could say it's the question. The crowds and the disciples have a fundamentally different experience of Jesus. The crowds are amazed at what Jesus says to them, often amazed at what they see Jesus do. The disciples are amazed at what Jesus is doing in them and even through them. They're amazed at what he can do even through them. Jesus' love, Jesus' truth, his wisdom, his grace, his mercy is changing their life in ways that are profoundly important. The disciples are amazed at their new identity and their new purpose. And this new community, this church that they've come into, although it's very imperfect, it's still a very helpful community. They're amazed at the new eyes and the new heart that Jesus is growing in them. Friends, I've been saying this now for weeks. Jesus' invitation is for you and me to leave the crowds and become a disciple and know the amazement that only a disciple of Jesus can know. You see, a disciple is someone who decides to believe 
the teachings of Jesus. More specifically, believe the promises of God. By believing, I mean uh, they are all in, you know, wholly committed, holding on to the teaching, to the promises of Jesus. Whether we are talking about people like Abraham, Isaac, I mean, you pick it, any, any character in the Bible, Jacob, Moses, Ruth, David, Esther, it doesn't matter who we're talking about. Every one of those individuals had to decide whether they would believe God, whether they would trust God, whether they would orient their life to doing life with God, regardless what the rest of the crowd did. And that's the same thing that disciples have to decide Today, do we believe the promises? And of course, you say, what promises? Why do you say that? Because that's where I'm going in my message. Um, I'm talking about the promises that we find in in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm talking about the promises actually that we find all over the Bible. There are literally hundreds, probably actually thousands of promises that we find in the Bible. Promises about what life with God can be like. And these promises are for disciples. They are for followers. And for the early disciples of Jesus, these promises were vital to them living in a hostile culture. And oh yeah, by the way, our culture is becoming more hostile. Uh, These promises are going to become more and more necessary for us to know and embrace and hold on to. And of course, uh, they're not just promises about going to heaven when you die. Their promise is about right now, changing me, changing this world, changing the places where we live and do business, changing those things right now. And of course, yes, the future too, eternal life with God. Here's, here's one of the promises. Um, this is the way Peter frames up this whole thing of promises. Very interesting to me. The apostle Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, uh, as you well remember, Jesus restores him to ministry. Uh, Peter later on writes these words. He says, his, he's talking about Jesus, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. You think the promises of of Jesus were important to Peter, Peter who had denied him? Oh man, you better believe. His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Peter says we have divine power to live godly lives and precious promises that enable us to participate in the divine nature. In other words, have our character transformed to be more like Jesus. That's a pretty big wow if you think about it. That's the life of a disciple. Talk about being a participant. A disciple participates in the divine nature, develops a character like Jesus himself. A disciple serves Jesus' great project, is fueled by Jesus' great power, is guided by Jesus' great wisdom, is comforted by Jesus' great community. Amazingly, none of this requires any money. It doesn't require degrees or, you know, great networking skills or talent or a high IQ. This is the good news of Jesus that we've been learning about from the great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. And they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will see God. 
all a way just to say they will participate in the divine nature. That's Peter's language. It will happen, Peter says, through the promises, not just promises, but great promises, and not just great promises, but great and precious promises. Let me mention a few, can I? Thank you. Here's one. David, almost certainly when he was on the run, on the run for his life, writes Psalm 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing, even though I'm sleeping in and living in a cave, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, even though this looks so bad, so bad. Let me tell you how bad it looks. You know what? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing, he says. And that stayed him. That secured him. That enabled him to function in a most difficult, life-threatening situation. Here's one. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Anybody here weary? Anybody burdened? Well, this is Jesus talking to you. I will give you rest, he says. Take my yoke upon you. Adopt my priorities. Uh, Center your life. Focus your life, your attention on me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I'm not here to condemn you, and you will find rest for your souls. Woo. Here's one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Anybody here got any unrighteousness in you? This is what you do with it if you know Jesus. But we have the mind of Christ, the apostle Paul says. Imagine that. We have the thoughts, the wisdom, the mind of Jesus if we want it. We can find it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I just, I, I read things like that and I put in the margin of my Bible. I just go, wow. <laughs> wow, are you kidding me? No condemnation for me. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Anybody lack wisdom? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. James, the brother of Jesus, says this. It says, um, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Can you imagine this? You're in a situation that's overwhelming to you. You're not sure where you're going to find the strength to cope with it, let alone the wisdom. Well, grace is sufficient for you, and wisdom is to be had just by the asking. In the Old Testament, uh, God reveals himself to Joshua this way. Remember, Joshua was the guy who just took over from Moses, a really lousy leader, right? Hardly important at all. Now it's Joshua, and Joshua's got to actually take the people into the promised land where there are all of these enemies. You think he was concerned? Well, this is what God says to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That's a promise to a disciple. Uh, Paul writes this and says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself says, But with God all things are possible. Uh, Paul writes and says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul, again, I can do all things. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And then Isaiah, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is set on, stayed on, fixed on you 
because he trusts in you. And one more, I love this. Again, this is Jesus' brother saying this. He'd observed this, I'm sure, in Jesus. But here's the promise. Come near to God and he will come near to you. God loves relationship. But these are promises made to us by God. These are just a few of those promises. There are so, so many more. And if we understand them and if we put them together, they are truly great and precious promises. Together, these promises tell us that if we do life with Jesus, if we choose, in other words, to actually be a disciple, function like a disciple, our unsatisfied desires will cease to dominate us. That's part of the promise of these prayers. Hurry and worry will begin to drop away. We will recognize and publicly confess our spiritual inadequacy with with growing abandon. It doesn't matter if you know how broken I am because I have nothing to hide. Jesus already knows everything about me, and yet he does not condemn me, nor you. You see, quite the contrary, he has taken our condemnation upon himself. This is precisely why we don't pretend to be perfect. We don't need to pretend. Uh, we, We can be honest about our sins. We can publicly confess them. We can cheer others on when they do the same. And this is why we don't judge. This is why we don't condemn. This is why we don't seek to correct others before we find that plank that's in our eye. You know, I'm, let me fix that little speck of dust in yours. But I have a plank in mine, says Jesus. And why? why? Because we live in the grace of Jesus Christ. Shame and judgmentalism have lost their grip on a disciple, or should. A disciple, you know, makes better decisions over time. A disciple does fewer and fewer foolish things because of Jesus' wisdom. Our weaknesses no longer need to torment us. In fact, we find power at work in us precisely in those places where we are weak. God loves to show up and work through someone who is surrendered and work right in the area of their weaknesses. When you embrace this way of life, life lived on the promises of Jesus, you will grow less easily irritated less quickly discouraged. Money worries and selfishness begin to diminish with generosity while generosity grows in us. Our sense of identity and our sense of usefulness just deepens because Jesus will use us, work in us to actually be a blessing to others and we will be increasingly filled with joyful dependence on him. Are these extravagant promises? Yes. Absolutely, they are great and precious promises. Are they true? Yes, absolutely, they are true. It's promises like these that Jesus has used, honestly, in my life many times to literally sustain me. When people that I have loved have suffered or when they have died or when they have acted very foolishly, when I myself have needed peace in circumstances I thought I could not endure, let alone explain, I can tell you with all honesty, I have known the power of promises like these, sometimes to change my circumstances, more often to change my perspective or to change something in my character in seasons of trial and difficulty in my life. I know that what James, the brother of Jesus, says is true. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And when I have quieted myself and when I have listened to God, for God to speak. I've heard him say, now now not literally, but he has communicated to me, Dwayne, I will give you today what you need for today. And if I don't give it to you, you don't need it. 
Trust in me. It's kind of like Jesus telling us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. God will do that every single day. He always does. He always has. I cannot tell you the extent to which this is true, friends. We either choose by faith to live in the great and precious promises of Scripture or we choose to live outside them. It's one or the other. And when we live outside them, of course, we're practicing our own wisdom. And we're fixing our own broken situations. Good luck. We're trying always to provide for myself, to save myself, to fix myself and fix others. And I find that when I take on that role, man, I tend to obsess over possible outcomes and how do I get this to happen? Stress rises in my life. My health suffers mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you name it. But when I focus my mind on God and I fasten my thoughts on his promises to me, the reality that he is with me, when I let that sink in and remember, that helps me to become the person he wants me to be. When my will is surrendered to him, God gives me strength. God gives me wisdom. God gives me peace despite the challenge I may be in. Isaiah the prophet said this of God. He said, God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And that promise, friends, is just true. So you can follow the crowd if you want. You can do that. Most people do. That's what most people do. The crowd is on its own. The crowd is looking for something, always something to satisfy it. Money, sex, power, success, fame, the list is really long. But I would ask you, what does money promise you? What is success or great health or security or fame? What do those things promise you? And then, of course, will they keep their promise? One thing is absolutely sure. You will build your life on some promise or another. You will bet your present and your future that some choice, some foundation is right because everybody builds a house even if they just drift into it and do it with very little thought. This we talked about last week. Jesus promises that everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So, are these promises extravagant? Yeah, absolutely, you bet. They are great and precious promises. Question is, for you and me, what will we do with them? Now, I wanted to find some way to make this really concrete and perhaps memorable for you. Uh, I wanted to illustrate what it looks like going from crowd, uh, you know, being in the crowd of spectators to full engagement, full surrender, full participation to be becoming a disciple. So I had this idea that I pitched to Tim, Tim Rehnquist, our executive pastor. And Tim was really surprisingly very enthusiastic about this idea, almost a little too enthusiastic. It made me second guess whether I should do it. But I decided I was going to take a leap of faith, literally. I decided I was going to jump out of a plane. I was gonna put my full trust uh, in a parasail, a parachute. Uh, I'd never done this before, not, not at all. I thought about it my whole life long, in fact, when I would hear people talk about doing this and think, oh, that sounds cool, that would be really fun. And I'd always said, I'd love to do that, it would be so much fun, boy, the adrenaline rush must be incredible. It's something everyone should do. I've even told others, yeah, you should do that, but I'd never done it myself. 
Uh, I've talked about it. I've been amazed by it as I thought about it. I've encouraged others to do it. I've told them it would be fun, but I had never done it. So take a look. What are you about to do today? Uh, I'm gonna jump out of an airplane. Perfectly good airplane, that is awesome. Bucket list item or special occasion? Uh, bucket list, but really the staff that I work with thought it was a great idea if I would jump out of a plane. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, here you go, get, a, get your opportunity. to make it look like I was totally comfortable with all that, but uh, there was a little bit of terror uh, of the feeling, to be honest. Uh, when I jumped out, I thought of a Bible verse, this is Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. But I got to thinking, that's not exactly what he says. What he says is, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I was at 18,500 feet, so that was not low. Uh, it was a big risk. Um, here's the deal. You know, before I jumped, I knew, of course, uh, things had been explained to me what we were going to do. Uh, we had this parasail, this parachute, and uh, I knew that those things could save you when you jumped out of an airplane. This was not an irrational leap of faith, not by any stretch. I knew all of that in my head. You could say I knew it theoretically. Uh, I've always been amazed when I would see people do this, and I would think, wow, that just looks like that would be fun. But it wasn't until I jumped out that I knew with my whole being, my, my sweaty armpits, my, the palms of my hands were sweating, uh, the pit there in my stomach. Oddly enough, I don't know that I have ever felt at that moment or, or ever felt in my life more alive than I felt at that moment. I mean, adrenaline is definitely pumping. My heart was pumping. Uh, leaping out of a plane does sort of look like a dumb thing to do when you're doing it, if you haven't done it a bunch. Uh, the moment when I leapt out of a plane, uh, that will be a moment I will never, ever forget. You know, they tell you, uh, cross your arms on your chest. There's a bar right there. I really wanted to grab the bar. That's why they tell you, cross your arms, you know. They don't want you grabbing things you're not supposed to grab. And, uh, but it, it was incredible. 
And here's the deal. If I had never jumped, I would never would have soared. I never would have got the fly. In fact, as we were, once he pulled the rip cord there and the, and the thing was, you know, go, we were descending, I said, this is a parasail, right? He said, yeah. I said, so you can actually, you can sail this thing. He said, yeah, right. I said, show me what you mean. And man, he started doing figure eights and bank turns. And it was, it was like a, there were a lot of G-forces involved in that, surprisingly to me. Um, here's the thing. The only way you see to soar, the only way to fly, the only way to know exhilaration and adventure, the only way to really know those kinds of things is to take the leap. Friends, the only way to really know the great and precious promises of Jesus are true is to take the leap of abandonment, commitment, and trust that really every disciple takes. Disciple practices doing this over and over and over, taking a leap of faith. Can I trust Jesus in my finances? Can I trust Jesus if I prioritize my life this way that he will use this, good will come of this, good will happen in my life? Can I trust him? You see, it's acting on the promises and doing what Jesus says to do. Now, the good news is Jesus does not say jump out of a plane. So that's not something you got to do. But let me tell you this, the risks that you take in discipleship are far more risky than that. Um, and again, it's not an irrational leap to put your faith or your trust in Jesus. We have good reasons for doing it. It does mean, however, that when you take the leap with Jesus, you are putting your entire life in his hands. You're having to believe him. And I, I hope that every one of us will take that leap of faith. And if you do, I promise you, I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. You, you will be amazed, in fact. For some of us, the leap of faith is trusting Jesus to save you. Some of you indicated last week that that was something you had done. Some of you many years ago. Some of you were doing it last week. One card, I, I won't mention the name. I thought this was great. Said something to the effect of, yeah, uh, you know, this, I'm going to do this. I, I may even do it later today. And I thought, okay, later today is good. It's better than never, but, you know. But for some of you, this, that leap of faith means just, I'm, I'm becoming a disciple of Jesus. For others of us, the leap of faith means rearranging priorities in our lives to align with Jesus' priorities. You may be calling yourself a disciple, but your priorities aren't Jesus' priorities. Well, I, I mean, they need to be. Um, for some of us, this whole question of discipleship and leap of faith is about following Jesus and obeying Jesus and building our lives on the rock, not on the sand. I would say it means having some kind of sense of commitment to reaching up, worship, reaching in, connecting with others. You need others to grow and reaching out. For some of us, the leap of faith is uh, repenting of sinful patterns in our life that keep us from God and asking Jesus to change us, and getting in community with others who can help us with those sinful patterns we've created, hold us accountable, pray for us, encourage us. And I would just ask you, and this is what I'm going to leave you with, I would just ask you, what is your next leap of faith? I mean, what does God want you to do to, to take your next step with him? It could be any number of things. It could. Financial, relationships, uh, relational priorities. But here's the thing, and with this, we end this series on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, don't hesitate to take that step. Don't hesitate to determine that you're going to build your life on the rock, 
the things that Jesus says, the things that Jesus promises. You won't regret taking that leap of faith. My challenge is just we are all of us in the wake of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, we are all of us challenged to live like a disciple. That's the adventure. That's what Jesus calls us to. And that has been and honestly is my prayer for all of us at this church. Because the great things that God can do through us, man, you you couldn't even number them. There would be so many wonderful things he could do in us if we will just participate, if we will just prioritize, if we will just embrace the great and precious promises the teaching of Jesus. Pray with me. Father God, again I say it, this has just been a remarkable study that we have had in the Sermon on the Mount. Week after week after week getting to soak in the teaching of Jesus. Lord, it's it's life-changing, it's It reorients the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at the world around us. It shocks us to realize how much you, Heavenly Father, have loved us, that you would send your Son to create a path for us to have life with you, the narrow way, the path of listening to and embracing and believing in Jesus, your Son. Father, I pray for all of us here this morning and uh, just that, that you would help us to see clearly what our next step is with you. Where do you want us to trust? Where do you want us to take a leap of faith to grow? Either to become a disciple or to grow more deeply as a disciple. Father, would you speak to us and encourage us that we can do this. You are with us. We thank you for our worship this morning and this time and this challenge and all of these things, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.